0: Thank you all very much for showing up. So, I'm very excited about uh, this episode because we have two great guests, Taylor Pearson and uh, Jason Buck. So, Taylor and Jason, they run a fund called uh, the Mutiny Fund. But what I really like about them is uh, that they, they, they not just manage money for other people, they are also very much interested in educating folks about investing, about portfolio construction, and so on. So, Taylor has this wonderful newsletter. Um, where where he, he talks about all, all kinds of probabilistic concepts, including ergodicity and, uh, you know, when, when is something ergodic and when is something not ergodic and, and things like that. He's got some lovely posts on there. Uh, for example, one of my favorite posts is when Taylor talks about uh, insurance uh, from the standpoint of ergodicity. And he says, okay, if you, if you just look at uh, an insurance product from a non ergodic perspective, it seems like a zero sum game. Either, either the insurer has to lose, or the insured has to lose, uh, but if you look at it from a from an ergodicity perspective, uh, it, it may actually make sense for that deal to happen and and things like that. So lo- lots of interesting stuff in Taylor's newsletter, and uh, uh, Jason um, uh, has this. They, they also have this very nice YouTube channel called uh, the, the Pirates of of Finance. And Jason appears on lots of podcasts, uh, for example, one of my favorite podcasts is when Jason appeared with uh, uh, on on Bill, Bill Bruce's podcast, and they they were talking about uh, volatility, and uh, that, that's why they talked about the cockroach portfolio. That's the first time I got introduced uh, to this idea of the cockroach portfolio, and um, it it makes a lot of sense, and so that that's kind of why I like these guys. They, they don't just manage money for others, they like to educate people about how, uh, how to invest and how to construct portfolios and, and things like that. Um, so, uh, Jason Taylor, we want to say a few words? Sure, I'll start
1: off. One, I just want to say thank you for having us on. We really appreciate 10K Diver having us on, on Money Concepts and then obviously the great tweet thread he wrote yesterday that hopefully got a lot of you here. So, and we appreciate everybody's time listening to us on this Sunday. So thanks everybody for being here. Um, also, I unfortunately start with a disclaimer. That you know, nothing we say is for investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only. But hopefully, we'll all have a good time um, chatting today. Other than that, uh, right away you start with ergodicity. You know, like you start with the heavy word starting first. And so, you know, we always try to break the concepts down simply, as you, as you referenced. And the idea, another easy way to think about ergodicity, hopefully, is like your personal path versus an ensemble path of everybody else. So, for example, Taylor wrote a great piece about you know um, Russian roulette. Would you rather play what you know russian would you rather be one of six people playing russian roulette or would you rather be one person that plays russian roulette six times so when a process is non-ergotic it means your personal path doesn't line up with the ensemble path of everybody else and that obviously plays into markets where people show you a long history of s p 500 returns and they say just buy and hold and definitely you end up better off and that's mathematically true over maybe 100 years but we don't know exactly which of those you know, multi-decade cohorts we're going to live through and when we're going to need our money most. And so your path versus everybody's in the world's path over multiple centuries is not going to look the same. And that's the idea of ergodicity
0: versus non-ergodicity of markets. Uh, absolutely. That's uh, such a great way to describe ergodicity. Uh, uh, so so one, one of the things that I really like about uh, your style of investing is this focus on survival. So th- this uh, brings back two Buffett quotes to me. So one, one quote that Buffett had in one of his letters is, uh, to finish first, you have to first finish. And the, the second quote that he had was, uh, you may have a long string of impressive sounding numbers, but if that long string of numbers is multiplied by a single zero at the end, the whole thing is worth exactly zero. Uh, so th- this speaks to the fact that uh, for investors, the first and foremost thing, uh, the most important thing, is to survive. And uh, the cockroach portfolio uh, and your your whole philosophy of investing is built around survival first and multi generational uh, wealth building. Meaning the portfolio has to survive for for multiple generations. Uh, so can can you talk a little bit about um, the the importance of survival? and uh, how you guys uh, came to structure your portfolio, uh, uh, the cockroach portfolio, how it emphasizes survival and uh, wh- why it is important for investors uh, to, to look at that portfolio through this lens.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I like the the Buffett quotes. Um, I heard the first one, and the that, uh, that second one I'd, I'd heard, but like, you know, it's a nice way of saying ergodicity, right? Like if you're, to use the example Jason gave, like, if you're playing russian roulette you only have to lose once for the game to be over forever right and so you you really have to to focus a lot on um never having that zero or never having that big loss
3: uh, right.
2: and then if you can do that it, the rest of it you know in our view is a lot a lot easier um so kind of from a like portfolio construction perspective um the way we think about it is you tend to have uh, and this is from the work of a, a guy named Harry Brown, which you mentioned in your thread yesterday, ten K. But um, sort of, you could break down four macroeconomic environments: you have either growth or recession, and inflation or deflation. And you know, you can have combinations of those, right? You can have inflationary growth, or uh, you know, deflationary recession, um, or that kind of stuff. And so his observation was like, all those are kind of the whatever is happening, it has to be in one combination of those things. So if we can add some piece of the portfolio that does well on each of those things, then something in the portfolio is always going to be doing good. Right. And that, that's trying to just reduce that chance that everything in the portfolio does bad or or goes to zero um, at the same time. And so his, his, his sort of first version um, that was sort of a, a very simple version, which is not necessarily a bad thing, was just equal parts of stocks, bonds, gold and cash. And so the idea was stocks do well in growth. Um, Cash does well in recession, gold does well in inflation, and bonds do well in deflation. So you can say, well, whatever happened, uh, something in here is going to do pretty well, um, and so that you know that that will reduce the long-term drawdowns of the portfolio, uh, and then we can go from there. So we you know we sort of built on um, on that. You know, you look at. Ray Dalio's all-weather portfolio, um, Ned Faber, his trading portfolio, there's a lot of other people, you know, risk parity approaches that are built on this sort of same model of like, okay, let's start from this four quadrant model of these are the four possible things that can happen. And then how do we construct a portfolio where something in the portfolio is doing well in there
0: no matter what? Right, right exactly. So that, that is such a hum, humble way, Harry Brown's way uh, to, to think about what, what's going to happen in the future, right? So there are only two things that the economy can do. It can either grow or it can shrink. And there are only two things that the currency can do. It can either become more valuable, which means deflation, or uh, it can become less valuable, which means inflation. So I don't know what exactly is going to happen in the future. The economy could grow, it could shrink, the currency could become more valuable, less valuable, but no matter what happens in the future, I'm, I'm going to try and position my portfolio so that something in the portfolio does well. Um, So so I I think that that's a very humble way to look at uh, acknowledging one's own limitations saying we cannot predict the future is such a great way to start off uh, with, with investing. Um, So, so this is in contrast to doing a, doing a DCF or something like that where you are actually trying to predict the future cash flows of a business and trying to attach a value to it. Uh, This this starts from uh, Harry Brown's idea starts from a fundamentally uh, humble point that we cannot predict the future. So um, can can you sort of uh, uh, compare and contrast these, uh, these two styles of investing where with one, you have to sort of be able to predict the future with, with some degree of accuracy. Whereas with the other one, you're not really trying to predict anything. You're only trying to position yourself for all possible futures that may come about.
1: Sure, I wanna kinda of
0: highlight a couple of things both you
1: said, so I'll try to answer that question in, in, in multiple ways. Um, sure. One is um, if you're properly diversified, which very few people are, is there's always going to be a part of portfolio you can't stand, where the the news media is telling you terrible, like a good example is bonds right now. Everybody's like saying, why would you hold on to hold bonds at these rate levels and what inflation's coming, so you'd be an idiot to hold bonds, right? And the idea is if you're properly diversified, you're always going to have a portion of your portfolio that is just odious to you, that if you turn on the financial media news, it's going to look terrible. But that's what proper diversification really is. If all of your asset classes are going up at the same time, you may think you're really happy, but that means you're not well diversified. So that's, that's part of that answer. The other one, when you're asking about, you know, multi-generational wealth, I think uh, an interesting way to think about it, what we always try to talk to our clients about is the idea of, you know, this whole investing world is told to you that your savings are really investments. And by doing so, they get you to take imprudent risk with your investments, thinking that's how you're going to get wealthy. We actually kind of look at the opposite way. Let's call your savings what it is. It's savings, right? You put away your savings because you never know when you're going to need the most to live off of, right? It could hopefully right. be when you retire, but you never know if a, if a loved one's going to get sick and you're going to need to be able to tap into those savings. And so that's going back to our ergodicity problem. You don't know the path of what you need. And so our idea is like what you really need your savings to do is you really need it to outpace inflation and be there when you need it most. So talking to multi-generational wealthy families. A lot of times they become so conservative that they're primarily like in cash, let's say, and their savings through multiple generations and multiple people gets eaten away by like inflation. So you do have to take a a little bit of risk to make sure your portfolio outpaces inflation. But that's what we try to do prudently through multi-asset class diversification is like, as long as our portfolio outpaces inflation in a very boring way, then that's going to be allow your savings to carry through when you need it most. And I'll say something sacrilege from the investment industry is like, you're, you're much better off, you know, increasing your income and increasing your savings rather than expecting your investments to really, you know, make double digit returns. And then you're taking an imprudent risk and all of a sudden you suffer a 50, 60 percent drawdown. And now what are you going to do? And, and now your savings are cut in half and it, it could potentially be, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't happen to you, but they could potentially be when you need it most. So those, uh, those are two pieces I want to touch on. Now, going back to your idea of creating DCFs and, and pitching, picking individual stocks is like you said, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a humble process to realize, to say, to raise your hand and say, I cannot predict the future, right? I do not have a crystal ball. And like you said, when you're doing a DCF, you're saying I can predict the future cash flows. Now, Taylor and I are you know, serial entrepreneurs. We've owned a lot of businesses. We own, you know, currently own businesses. And the idea that we could predict our cash flows next year or, the, or five years out is kind of laughable to us, right? Like in 2019, uh, none of us had COVID on our DCFs. So right. that's, that, that's the amount of humility, but part of that too is what's interesting to me always from an egoic perspective is doing DCFs and picking single equities is you're, is you're trying to make the hero trade, right? And that's the idea everybody always banters around is like, what's the best equity for me to buy or what's the best asset class for me to buy currently, right? So once again, you're saying, I have a crystal ball. I can predict the future. I want to pick the, the asset or equity that's going to give me the highest return. Now... We kind of view the world as the opposite of that. We're not looking for those hero trades. We're trying to build the least shitty portfolio that can kind of muddle along and do well and no no matter what of those four quadrant macro environments we're in. And so it's it's difficult sometimes to say, you know, I'd love to, um, my ego would love to be able to pick equities and say, you know, I'm better than Buffett. Um, But experience has taught me and Taylor that, you know, you maybe need to be more prudent with our asset class mix and rebalance those properly. And that will be the way that we can really compound our savings over our lifetimes and hopefully our, our kids and our grandkids lifetime.
0: Right, right. Exactly. So I, I want to ask about uh, this thing that you mentioned about bonds. Um, so, yes, you're absolutely right. When you when you look at the financial media today, um, you know, even, even Buffett, uh, if, if you look at how he has structured Ber- Berkshire's portfolio, the, the share that he has given to fixed income uh, has, has dramatically come down. And um, he he has this again very very nice quote that says uh, bonds which are which are supposed to give you uh, risk free return uh, now give you return free risk or something like that. <laughs> uh, and um, so one so one thing I want to ask is this whole uh, idea of distinguishing investing uh, from speculation when it comes to bonds. So if if you buy bonds today, uh, say. say um, a, a corporate bond or something like that and hold it to maturity you, you may get something like a two percent return if you, if you buy a bond and hold it all the way to maturity so uh the intrinsic value of that bond is uh, uh well it's it's sort of priced to give you uh, a two percent return or something like that from here to maturity uh but of course if uh inflation is lower than expected or something like that uh then the value of those bonds can can go up but then you are th- that that would be, uh, or at least Buffett would call it something in the realm of speculation, because you're now looking at um, the, the effect of interest rates uh, and the effect of inflation on the value of those bonds. And those bonds, um, the the price could rise quite a bit. Uh, but if, if you're sort of counting on that, that would be a, a kind of speculation, because if you just buy and hold it to maturity, you're going to get a 1% or 2% return. That's the intrinsic value, right? So there's Investing versus speculation. Um, and Buffett would say that bonds aren't a good investment, but who knows, they may be a good speculation. So, uh, do, do you think about bonds um, in, in that way?
1: Uh, I'll start off first. I would actually flip it around. So, like what you referenced perfectly is the idea that um, bonds have a football like P&L. Like we know the terminus point, but the path to get there, we don't know. And the value along that path, based on the interest rates, like you said, or interest rates expectations, can change. The uh, the notional value of that bond. And so that's the interesting kind of piece about bonds. We talk a lot about path versus terminus and it's very interesting to look at the world that way um, along your lines. Yeah, it would be speculation. If you're speculating on you expect the value the, of that bond to go up along the path, right? Like if you're buying a 10 year, but you're looking to trade it on a on a shorter term time frame. That's a form of speculation. You're correct. The thing is, if you're looking at the terminus and let's say the 10 year bonds, two and a half percent right now, um, like you said that that may not be, look very fruitful to maybe you or Buffett or others, but what you're, there's an implicit assumption there that we're about to live through an inflationary environment. Now, the question is, what happens if we continue along this prolonged deflationary environment, right? Like what happens if, you know, the great, you know, debt overhang, um, the, the march of technology, et cetera, that maybe this is an inflationary blip on the radar and we go back to deflation. I'm not saying I know, I'm saying I don't know what the future looks like, And in that world, that's what uh, Taylor referenced earlier, is in a deflationary or disinflationary world, you want bonds, you want income. So that income is much more steady than the the deflationary environment of of the collateral base of your currency is is, is exhibiting. So it's much more about, yes, 2.5% doesn't sound good, but if deflation continues apace, that that 2.5% is outpacing the deflationary effects. And that income is gonna be more substantial for your portfolio, especially if we go into like a negative interest rate world again.
0: Right, the, the, that's a great point. So two and a half percent is in, in nominal terms, but in, in real terms, the return may be higher than two and a half percent if we end up in a deflationary environment.
2: And I think also to the, the point about path and terminus, um, the, I mean, as you laid out in your thread, like one of the critical elements here to how we think about it is like rebalancing, right? Like if you're not the whole sort of way, the diversification and the math... Um, works is you do have to rebalance the assets. So there's actually, let, you know, let's just say that the corporate bond in your example is, is priced exactly correctly at 2%. You know that That's the terminus. Depending on the path that takes, its overall contribution to the returns of the portfolio could be much higher, right? Like inflation could come in a lot less than people expect. The value of those bonds go up, goes up. You're rebalancing. You're selling some of those since the value of the bonds go up. Now inflation gets a lot hotter the value of the bonds goes down now you're buying them back and infl- so you know right so it's that you can get that um, because you're getting the geometric not the arithmetic return with the rebalancing it, it the terminus in a way is like less relevant than the path right if there's actually a large amount of volatility in there and right, you're effectively right. sort of buying low and selling high as that goes up the actual contribution your portfolio the bonds could make could be five percent even if even if the two percent.
0: Um, terminus is the correct, you know, where things end up. Right. That, that, that is such a great point. So uh, on a standalone basis, bonds may look unattractive, but when you uh, combine it with other assets into a portfolio, they may actually add significant value to the portfolio, which you will not be able to say just by looking at their standalone value.
2: Exactly.
0: Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's, that's such a great point. Uh, so, so I I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the allocation that uh, Harry Harry Brown uh, uses in his portfolio. So yeah, he 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 had this uh, idea where um, you know he had the four four quadrant model where the economy could be growing or shrinking, the currency could be uh, inflating or deflating, and so he he said okay I'll I'll uh, have four different asset classes: stocks, bonds, cash, and uh, uh, so so what what he would do is to each of these four different um, asset classes uh um, he 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 would uh allocate twenty five percent so so um for example he has twenty five percent in gold and twenty five percent in bonds and uh in an inflationary period gold is probably going to do well uh but in in a deflationary period uh bonds may do well uh so th- doesn't that implicitly mean that he's expecting something like a uh equal probability of inflation and deflation now if if you wanted to um, model in the fact that y- you think inflation uh, is more likely than deflation. Suppose there's a 90% chance of inflation, but only a 10% chance of deflation. Then, uh, the optimum allocation that you would, uh, use wouldn't be 25, 25, 25, 25, right? It, it would be, uh, h- higher in favor of things that do well in inflationary environments and things like that. So, uh, h- how do you guys think about uh, estimating uh, the the probabilities of these things, is it something that's knowable or uh, is is uh, is it just unknowable? And so at, at this stage, the best that we can do is 25, 25, 25, 25.
2: So the way I think about it, the way we think about it generally is we're, we're kind of like outsourcing the probability calculation to the market, right? Because it's not, um, could, let's use the inflation deflation example. Um, what really matters on the asset prices is whether or not those uh what relative to what the expectations are uh what happens inflation? So, like for example let's say currently there's two percent inflation i'm making these numbers up and the market expects there to be five percent inflation and inflation does go up let's say it only goes up from two to three instead of two to five it would actually you would expect this sort of deflationary bucket to do better because inflation even though we had inflation inflation was less than what we Expected right, what was priced into the market expected a higher levels of inflation, and so you know, relative to the market prices, those inflation areas is coming down. So the the market is almost like adjusting that when you're when you're doing the rebalancing, right? Like that's that's where the probabilities come in. You're saying, well, inflation expectations are X, and that's like built into the price of bonds. So when we're buying or selling bonds, um, we're just rebalancing to whatever the probabilities that the market is assessing for those two things.
3: There's, right, there's a couple
1: right, things right. T- Taylor said in there too that I'll, I'll expand upon as well. Is like the idea of once again um, the idea of humility, right? Not being predictive of the future. So if we ran future models where we fact, like you're saying, like we expect uh, just roughly 90% expectation of inflation versus 10% deflation, and we adjust the portfolio accordingly, um, we are making an implicit assumption about the future, and and we have to be right. And so that there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I mean, our, our mutual friend Med Faber's run a ton of these different tests across tons of different portfolios. And if people are using proper portfolio diversification, you know, whether it's permanent portfolio, all weather portfolio, the Ivy league portfolio, they all kind of have roughly the same returns, even if people are trying to time the market over time. I mean, it's so roughly in the same band. So it's like, once again, are you toggling because of your own ego or is, you know, are you doing anything that's actually effective? And, and once again, more important is that rebalancing premium that uh, Taylor referenced. So if you have you know, uncorrelated and negatively correlated and very diverse return drivers and you're rebalancing frequently, and in, in Harry Brown's paper, he used re- rebalancing bands instead of necessarily timing horizons. And you by rebalancing, you're following those capital flows around the world as they go to different asset classes. As their performance chasing or their expectations of inflation are going higher or lower, you're basically rebalancing along with the rest of the market. And what that is forcing you to do, it's forcing you to buy low and sell high as capital flows to the different asset class return drivers in that four quadrant model. So that's what, you know, there's a lot of studies that you, the rebalancing premium can be anywhere from an extra one to 5% on an annualized basis, depending on the volatility of the portfolio and which asset class um, mix you use. And so the other thing that people do a lot of times is they'll will, they will do like a trend following overlay to like these asset classes. And that way you can time more the market, right? You could be more heavily in, um, and gold and other other inflationary hedges during an inflationary time. But when you start uh, toggling your portfolio that way, you're subject to like whipsaw effects. And so that's, it's just a different problem to have. Like as, you know, in, in March 2020, if you were toggling your portfolio to like these kind of events and, and, or to volatility and the market sells off and you're completely out of stocks, well, you know, you followed that on the way down, you closed out your position and then you weren't, you weren't levering back into stocks as they had that V-shaped recovery. Which is fine, but that's those are whipsaw effects. If you start to toggle your portfolio to try to manage expectations of what you think the future expectations for each asset class are going to be, there's just trade-offs to
0: doing both. Right, exactly, and that—that's that, the value of humility and accepting that you—you you really cannot um, predict the the future. And and Taylor's point is also a great one that it's—it's it's not whether you think inflation is more likely or deflation is more likely. In, inflation may be more likely, but. Is it going to be higher than what the market expects or lower than what the market expects? That's really what you're looking at. Uh, Not not whether inflation is more likely or deflation is more likely. That's also, uh, I I think, a very valuable uh, point. And there's another piece to that that we were talking
1: about uh, to you privately is the idea of when when we're putting together our portfolios for these different asset classes, there's also a different... um, different uh, instruments you can use, right? Whether they're linear or convex instruments. So for example, when you're, when you're constructing that portfolio, it was almost implicit in, in, in your question was like, well, what if I'm in both you know, equal amounts of bonds and let's say gold, and aren't they going to offset each other so I actually don't get a return no matter, no matter when they're in deflation or inflation. But what we think about is like, we like to use linear instruments to ride these risk on decades when stocks and bonds are doing well, but then we use convex instruments for those hedges, like we said, uh, Harry Brown used gold and cash. And if you if were live today, we feel like he would he would appreciate our modern interpretation is instead of cash, we use an ensemble of long volatility and tail risk managers. And instead of just gold, we use an ensemble approach of trend following CTAs to ride all the commodity markets, not just gold. And so the idea is we use linear instruments to ride stocks and bonds. And we use very convex instruments that like for every dollar spent, they might have a, a, a ten dollar payout. To do to that non-linear convexity, if like the market was to sell off, and that way you're pairing linear and non-linear, so they're not necessarily offsetting or negating each other. It's just using different market instruments to really play those different markets of the four quadrant. Right, right,
0: exactly. So, um, can you uh, talk a little bit more about this whole idea of convexity? So, what is convexity, and uh, what should retail investors know about? Convexity and how to analyze it in the context of a portfolio. So convexity actually is a hard one. To, we were actually trying to do this
1: on an episode of Pirates of Finance the other day. Um, the idea of linearity is like for every uh, one, you know, one percent up move, my instrument's going to go up one percent. The idea of convexity is it can accelerate into that move, um, and that creates convexity curves. So for every one percent the market moves, I might be up two percent, and then uh, for the next one percent of moves, I might be up four percent, and the next one percent, I might be up eight percent. And so that's, it's, a, it's a non-linear um, exponential return curve. And so that's the idea of convexity. It's more like uh, thinking about acceleration or velocity. And so when you have these derivative instruments like options, um, it's called being long gamma. So your deltas will move. And I don't, don't worry about learning those terms. But the idea is when you're using options or other derivatives, you can create this convex return profile where you're, you're putting up a dollar and you can lose that dollar. That's your options premium. It's a lot like insurance but then your payout may be $10 if the event happens that you're waiting for. So most of the times you're just going to lose a dollar spending on that insurance premium. But then if the, the, the event happens that you're expecting, you can get a $10 return. So it's not one for one, it's one for 10. And that's the
0: convexity or the acceleration into the moon. Right. That's such a great explanation of convexity. I'm I'm thinking of doing a a future thread on convexity, by the way.
3: Please, (laughs) please do.
0: It's, It's really hard. Like if you can come up with that, I'm sure you can, you'll come up with better analogies and metaphors and, yeah, please do. I look forward to Thank you so much. Uh, so so we, we talked about the power of negative correlations in, in, in the thread. So if, if you can find two assets and they are negatively correlated, we, we had this example in the thread where uh, asset one gives us a 1.6% one, 1. return and asset two actually gives us a negative 2.8% return. Uh, but using a combination of these two assets, we can get a 12.4% return. And so that, that is the power of uh, negative correlations if we can constantly rebalance uh, between these two assets. But you you guys, you you have this uh, very important point, I think, about structural versus non-structural uh, correlations. So if, if I tell you the two assets are correlated, uh, now th- those correlations uh, may... Uh, play out into the future or they may not so if 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 i say stock a and stock b are negatively correlated they may have been negatively correlated up to today but from tomorrow they may start uh being positively correlated so uh, can can you talk a little bit about uh, structural uh, correlations versus non structural correlations and how you think about these things in in your uh, portfolio um and um in in the cockroach portfolio
2: yes yeah, so i think it's like at any as you say like you could take any two assets you know google and amazon stock or amazon and berkshire or whatever and you can run some historical correlation that says i don't know you know it's 0.8 that th- these things tend to move together with that sort of frequency um and it's very hard it's very hard to extrapolate those things into the future because if you if you look at those things over time those correlations tend to move around a lot so um I think one of the best examples is if you look at the correlation between stocks and um government bonds, long term treasury bonds over the last forty years, there's been a pretty persistent excuse, me, I just say really last last twenty years in particular, like post dot com bubble. There's been like a pretty persistent negative correlation, right? So when stocks uh go up, uh, bonds tend to not do that well. But when stocks go down uh, bonds to do well. So the idea of like a 60-40 uh, a portfolio that's a, a fairly um, sort of common approach of 60% stocks, 40% bonds is, well, when my stocks go down, bonds are going to make some money and I'm going to rebalance. And you know, this is the idea. There's the same thing we're talking about, right? It's like we're having two negatively correlated assets. And by rebalancing between them, we're uh, getting a higher risk adjusted return than if we just had um, one of those things. The, the challenge, as you point out, is if you go back further, Sort of pre two thousand it was pretty common for stocks and bonds to be correlated with one another that that correlation has changed a lot over time. There have been periods where they go through years of being negatively correlated and years of being positively correlated so if you're sort of building a portfolio where you're counting on this negative correlation um, you know how do how do you know that what the correlations are going to be in the future right You can look at what they are in the past and um, you can make some judgment calls so the way we kind of think about it is. Are there, are there some things we can look at as, you know, it's like a structural element that makes it um, at least more likely that these things are going to remain negatively correlated in the future? So like a, a, a simple example, of like a structural negative correlation would be like if you're a long a stock and you're short a stock at the same time, right? Structurally, whether that stock goes up or down, those two positions are going to be perfectly negatively correlated, right? That, that if it goes up $1, you make $1 on your long position and you lose $1 on your... Um, and your short position, of course, it also means you never, um, you know, you're, you're never making or losing money. But there's a there's a clear structural link there, um, and so sort of a, a similar example, going back to the the convex versus linear things, is if you are long a stock, um, and then you have a you know a put option or some sort of um, option on that stock that you know benefits if that stock goes down, um, that is structurally linked to the price of the stock. Let's say you're um, the stock is trading at 100, and you um, by a put option with a strike price of ninety dollars, and the, the price of the stock goes from one hundred down to eighty, you know you are contractually entitled to um, sell that stock, to buy that stock at eighty and sell it at ninety. That's what the the option gives you the right to do. So there's there's a clear structural relationship um, between the two things you have there. You're not just counting on like, well, I hope this correlation persist into the future, even though there's no sort of, like, fundamental basis for it. Um, you're trying right. to say, like, well, how can I, how can I find, is there something I can find that has some structural element, uh, which makes it, you know, significantly more likely that it's actually going to remain negatively correlated in the future? And then, and then I can trust that, okay, my portfolio construction is going to work, or right? I can trust, I can trust more um, that when, you know, this this thing is going down, this other thing is going to be going up.
1: There's, exactly. there's a couple of things Taylor, Taylor said in there as well as um, the idea, too, of like you were saying, the correlations are based on your time window analysis. And, and Taylor's starting to talk about that with bond, stocks and bonds. And ironically, this is a lot of times where uh, machine learning and AI systems blow up because the data that they, they backtested on was market regime dependent. And so if they're only using five, 10 years worth of data, um, as soon as you have a market shift regime that they haven't seen in that 10 years of data, um, those, those, those trading strategies tend to blow up because, once again, correlations fluctuate quite dramatically. In, uh, I, and interestingly enough, usually when these stock, uh, stock bond correlations end up usually being positive over a prolonged period of time, the market regime tends to be in an inflationary environment. So uh, if that persists in the future, we'll see. But uh, it's a good thing to think about that in inflationary environments, which almost probably everybody on this call has never necessarily lived through, um, that's when we see stock and bond correlations start going towards one. And, and just so you reference correlation matrix, uh, correlations go from positive one to negative one. And so zero would be uncorrelated, positive one right. correlated, negative one structurally, like negatively correlated. And so what happens, sure. like you're saying, is like if you're picking stocks and you're all in stocks and you're looking at the correlations during a risk on cycle and you're saying some of these stocks are uncorrelated, well, everybody's heard correlations go to one in a sell-off. And so if that means you're all in stocks and everything goes, everything's going down together. So that's what also is interesting about correlations, uh, regime dependence on just risk on and risk off. We don't even need to talk about necessarily inflation or deflation, but if times are going well and, and, and everybody's happy and, and credit markets are awash with liquidity, you could say my, my stocks are relatively uncorrelated over this short you know five-year look back. But as soon as like a March 2020 sell-off happens, stock correlations go to one and they all go down together. And so right. we think about it as is, is there's really only like three correlations, right? You're either correlated, uncorrelated, or, or negatively correlated. So almost all uh, long GDP-like assets, stocks, bonds, venture capital private equity credit debt they're all correlated to one with stock markets when when we have a panic sell and so that was why we view almost everybody's portfolio that they think is a well-diversified pie chart if we just look at it in in, under the idea of risk on or risk off they're highly correlated to risk off they probably have correlations of one so even though they think they're uncorrelated during risk on times they're very correlated the other way we talk about this is uh, short volatility and long volatility. And so another way to say that is like when those correlations go to one, all those long GDP assets, they're implicitly short volatility. And what we mean by that is like those asset classes do not like volatility in markets. They prefer it's all quiet. You know, everything's kind of humming along peacefully. Everybody's expectations of the future are upbeat. And so as soon as like, you know, you have a, maybe the Russian invasion of Ukraine or volatility starts to hit the markets, those are terrible for those asset classes. And that's why most people's asset classes fall under this implicit short volatility regime. And that's why we like pairing it with like long volatility assets. But the, the easy way to think about that is just risk on and risk off. Risk on assets, love short, you know, low volatility, risk off assets do well when volatility picks up. And that's why we, we think about portfolio construction. And we're thinking about Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. It necessarily wasn't necessarily built on correlations. It was built on, economic return drivers in the four quadrants, and he wasn't necessarily toggling those for their correlations and or their volatility the way like uh, Ray Dalio at All Weather has done. And and so those are uh, different ways we think about correlations is like everything is going to either fall under three correlations, right? It's, it's going to be correlated with stocks, which is most asset classes. Uncorrelated is a trading strategy like trend following CTAs in the commodity space, and then structural negatively correlation, that Taylor was referencing is like when you buy put options and that's why like right. we don't believe you can count on that negative correlation of bonds we want that real st- that's that's what we would call a um uh what's the word I'm looking for uh it's just a it's a th- that correlation is just based on the look back period where we want that real structural negative correlation when you buy right. that put you, you want a guaranteed
0: negative correlation you you Correct. don't just want an empirical uh correlation based on historical data exactly Right, right. And so can can you talk a little bit about uh, volatility as, uh, so do you think vo- uh, volatility provides uh, that guaranteed? Uh, so so I, I can immediately relate to a put option. So if you have a stock and if you have a put option on that stock, yes, there is a guaranteed negative correlation between those two. But if you have something like the S&P 500 and the WIX, for example, the, the volatility index, uh, I'm, I'm having a much harder time seeing why these two uh, should have a structural guaranteed negative correlation? Can can you help sure. explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the um, thing we were talking about before. This is where we started getting into trickier nuance, and and it depends. Um, and so the word I was looking for is statistical correlation. Right? It's a uh, structural right. versus statistical correlation. And so why why we say it depends is like the reason we love just buying put options. And that ta- that's what we call tail risk, right? Tail risk solutions or tail risk hedges is when you buy put options. And we reference that's that structural negative correlation because as long as the markets are open, that's the way it's structured. You know, it's guaranteed that payout. The way though that you would think about uh, volatility or long volatility, especially when you know, people understand S&P and the VIX. Well, when they first start looking into S&P versus the VIX, they can see during risk on times, these things are statistically negatively correlated to a high amount. It's like a negative uh, 0.9 correlation. And the reason that is um, that you're asking about is like the idea of the stock market to take the um, stairs up and the elevator escalator down. And so typically we see volatility picks up when the stock market crashes. Now that's true, especially if you're going from risk on to risk off, like we saw in March, 2020. So what will happen is as the S&P sells off, volatility will spike. And so that you have that nice statistical negative correlation. But the problem is, is after volatility picks up, and volatility is maybe running persistently higher, that statistical negative correlation is gonna come way down. It might be now uncorrelated. And so you know once again, referencing uncorrelation means you know, 50% of the time they can go in the same direction and be highly correlated. So that's right. what people gotta be really careful of with um, VIX futures or like the VIX ETPs, is if we're going from a risk-on environment like 2019, um, going into 2020, in that March of 2020, you had that nice uh, statistical negative correlation that as soon as that market sold off from a risk-on environment, we went risk-off, volatility spiked through the roof. So that gave you that great negative correlation. But now since that sell-off, you have like what we call an echo of volatility, where the correlation might be going from negative nine to uncorrelated or maybe even slightly positive. And now the VIX markets are not going to provide that structural negative correlation hedge to the S&P 500. So it can get very uh tricky and wonky that's why our favorite answer is i don't know and our second favorite answer is it depends so this is an environment where it depends and just to give you another historical example in the 99 yeah in the 99 (laughs) in the 99 bull market in um in tech names you had s p up and volatility up because volatility like i said it, it like you asked it's not structurally negatively correlated to the s p uh, volatility is actually variance. So we're actually, we, we, we kind of misnamed it volatility, because it's actually variance. So if the expected variance is higher than expected to the upside, if the market's melting up, you can have a, uh, a market up volatility up environment. And now there, now there's statistical correlations going towards one, so towards positive one. So that's the other thing, like, that's what I'm saying. It's, it it kind of, it depends on whether volatility is a, is a good
0: hedge for the S&P. Okay, so if, you, if you're going to be basing your uh, the, the, the whole strategy for, for negative correlation, um, so if, if you're going to be basing it on volatility versus if you're going to be basing it on something like rolling put options or something like that, uh, rolling put options will provide a stronger guarantee of negative correlation than uh, volatility, right? Correct. Okay, perfect. Uh, so, so in, in in an environment if we have some some kind of uh, future uh, crash where stocks for some reason if they take the stairs down but the elevator up the the opposite of what you said uh, then then uh, volatility uh, uh, based assets may may or may not provide the 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 right kind of negative correlation that we want right
1: correct and that's why our answer our favorite answer is always it depends so I'll let Taylor kind of uh assess like how we look at the different uh instruments and asset classes for how we manage that across an ensemble approach and, and how... uh, right uh, absolutely
2: absolutely yes yeah, so i get kind of the, when we're thinking about like the volatility portion of the portfolio specifically we think there's kind of like three attributes that you would ideally like to have in that component to make to make the most of the overall portfolio um, we talked about kind of two you know, one is convexity, right? Like you'd like that uh, when there is the stock market sells off, that there's a significant convexity and that, you know, it more than offsets whatever your losses in the stock market are. Um, and as, as you're referencing, you'd like to have some certainty, right? Like you don't want to rely on hopefully these things happen the way they have in the past. Um, and then you also ideally you want to have, uh, you'd like for the thing to have positive carry or at least not that negative carry. Uh, most of the time, so the the sort of ideal theoretical um, volatility strategy or hedge would be,
3: uh, you know,
2: 100% certainty that it's going to work. Uh, it let's say it's a costless hedge. You know, it does cut in, in years where uh, the convexity doesn't kick in or nothing bad happens. Uh, it carries totally flat, um, and you have lots of convexity. But you know, when the stock market goes down, it goes up way more. Um, according to the, the problem, of course, is that. Does so exist. can it's you talk waiting. a
0: little bit about the, the difference between convexity and carry? Yeah, I, I,
2: generally the way I would think i just say carry is like in years where, um, going back to our four quadrant model, in years that are just growth years, right? You know, most of the time the stock market is going up. Um, right. That that's that's the typical thing, um, and so you know, there are if you have something that has very high certainty of working, very high convexity, but it loses too much money. You know, every year that the stock market goes up five percent, it's down ninety percent. Um, it doesn't work as a hedge, right? You lose you lose too much in the good years. You have to you have to limit those losses in the good years uh, right, to right. some extent for the for the convexity. Because you need to trade off. If you have an insane amount of convexity, then you can have less carry in good years, right? Because the convexity right. kicks in. If you have uh, more carry,
0: you need less convexity for it to improve the portfolio and. Um, so I, I really love your analogy between, uh, so you had this thing uh, where, where you compared the black swan uh, to the white moose. And, and you said um, uh, uh, the white moose may be a riskier uh, uh, thing for, for many investors than the black swan. Can can you just um, uh, talk, talk a little bit about that? It it reminds me of Peter Lynch's thing where uh, he, he likes to say that Far more money has been lost uh, sitting on the sidelines waiting for a bad market than in the bad market itself.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's um, the Black Swan. People may be familiar with it's a concept from the seam to Lab of this you know unexpected you know bad event the nineteen you know financial the nineteen eighty seven flash crash or the dot com bubble or the housing collapse or you know COVID this this thing that no one expects that ends up having this disproportionate um, impact. Um, you know, the flip side of that is like m- most of the years there isn't a black swan, mostly things, you know, generally the, you know, the future looks different than in the past, but usually it doesn't look that different. You know, things kind of keep chugging along uh, in the same way. And so as you said, like you know, the, the investor that's like, Oh, I'm so afraid of this crazy black swan thing going to happen. I'm just going to be, you know, a hundred percent like cash and gold and everything super defensive and uh, worried about everything. You know, that person can often do worse than, the person that's like, uh, well, just nothing bad is ever going to happen. So that's kind of the way we look at um, portfolio construction and going back to the four quadrant model is we we don't know if it's going to be a black swan or a white moose year. We we don't know what's going to go. And so we have some things that do well when the black swan comes and we have some things that do well um, when the white moose shows up. And so kind of either way, what's happening to do well. And then we're rebalancing that, right? Every year that the white moose shows up and there's no black swan, we're taking some of the profits from that, that, the white moose side of the business, or the white moose side of the portfolio, so to speak, the the stocks and bonds, and we're distributing that to the the other parts of the business. That are so when you know whatever that, that black swan thing does um, does show up, you're ready for it. And I, I actually I wanted to go back briefly to uh, on that point to something we talked about earlier with like multi generational wealth and, and all that. I think you know one it's interesting if that's part of your goals, you want to have multi generational wealth and um, all that. That's great. I think it's also just useful as like a framing device because you know, you have, I think there's just like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just worried about the next five years um, or the next 10 years. I'm only thinking about one in 10 year events or one in five year events. Um, But, you know, you you could run the probability on this better than I could, but it was the chance that a one in a hundred event happens at some point in the next 10 years. Like there's a decent chance, right? Are the next 10 years, the years the one in hundred event works. I think, you know, we're all, if you went back to 2019 and said, you know, what are the odds that we have a, global pandemic and a European war in the next three years, you know, it looks very unlikely, but, um, you know, one in a hundred year events will happen from time to time. I've framing it in that, that kind of way is it's kind of, it's just a framing device in a way for thinking about it in a more ergodic way. You're saying, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And I, going back to your buffer quote, like we have to eliminate these zeros. We have to eliminate these really big, bad drawdowns.
0: Um, and so thinking in that terms, I think just, it, it helps to do that right exactly so so you you do want protection against the black swan when it happens uh, but you don't want to pay so much for the protection that the benefit that you get when that black swan happens does not outweigh uh, the 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 uh, the amount you've already uh, paid how much you've already paid for that protection right so so uh, that, that that is such a great point and um, convexity and uh, concepts like that uh, help you sort of assess um, what what kinds of events you are protected against and uh, wh- when is the protection worth it? And when is the protection not worth it? Uh, so, so uh, I, I want to ask one, one more question and then we'll uh, take the, uh, we'll, we'll take questions from, from callers. So uh, you, you guys have this, uh, this volatility uh, trading and uh, you you outsource your volatility to a bunch of different managers and things like that. So, as a retail investors, uh, we really cannot um, uh, we we don't have uh, so much of firepower uh, that we we can trade volatility based instruments and things like that. So, w- what can retail investors do? to implement some of uh, harry brown's ideas and some all, all the ideas that we discussed so far convexity and multi-generational wealth and all that w- what can ordinary retail investors do today to sort of harden their portfolios and make make them more robust that that uh, people like your clients have that retail investors don't have what what can retail investors do to sort of bridge that gap a little bit
1: and this is, of course, you asked us the hardest question. And this is obviously the question that we were actually trying to solve for retail and that we've been spending years trying to solve. And it actually ties in, you know, kind of perfectly with what, you know, Taylor was just talking about on, on the last side is that, you know, we, we made the name for ourselves and our first fund was a long volatility and tail risk kind of solutions fund. But we're not perma bears. That was the idea of White Moose is like, once again, going back to that humility and agnosticism is like, we can't predict the future. So that's why we try to hold all these asset classes. We just started out building a, a long volatility and tail risk fund because of, of what you just said. Retail has never had access to these kind of products. So this is how Taylor and I actually came together initially. It's like, if you read a Nassim Taleb book, a Chris Cole white paper or anything kind of on the long volatility tailor space or, or Mark Spitznagel, and you're like, you know, we had family and friends coming to us and go, Great, I read this book, I really want to hedge my portfolio. And our response is, do you have 150 dollars million? They're like, "No." And we're like, "Well, you're you're screwed because that's that's the minimum for Spitznagel and Taleb's fund, roughly, like in in that ballpark." And so these are really built for only institutional allocators. And so, you know, being entre- you know, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, Taylor and I like we figured we could put our heads together to find a solution. And so this is what we set out to do, and unfortunately, we've done everything we can do, but like Unfortunately, we're down to the level where we, it, it's accredited only um, and just because of all the regulatory burdens and everything. But we've got the access point down to $100,000 US. And the idea Thanks. is like, yes, that's not you know $1,000, but it's, it's better than it's ever been before. And we give you access to the best and brightest uh, long volatility and tail risk managers in the business for an access point of $100,000. Like if you were, we now have 14 managers in our long volatility uh, fund, and I'll explain why. But the, the idea to get access to those 14 managers would cost you 50 to 100 million dollars. So we provide right. that access point for for 100 grand. Now it's not perfect, right? It's not 10 dollars, and it's not non-accredited. And believe me, we're we're actually spending this weekend brainstorming like how we could stuff that into like a 40 act or an ETF. We're we're always doing our best. It's just the regulatory burdens that exist. But the reason why we we take an ensemble approach, because once again, it's based on our humility and the way we view uh, life in general. And the idea behind the ensemble approach is every risk-off in the future is going to look different from a past risk-off. And though, even though it's very easy, because um, th- this kind of goes back to your question, it's very easy to put on options positions. Like any retail uh, investor, anybody could just put on a, a deep out-of-the-money put, um, you know, three months out and roll it every one to two months. Very easy to do, but very tricky to monetize and roll effectively. So that's really the problem is like when that volatility spikes and you're able to maybe cash in that, do you cash? How do you how do you cash it in? How do you monetize? You know, are you monetizing at the peak of volatility? Are you monetizing at half the peak, a quarter of the peak? You know, how do you roll that position in case, case after the sell off there's a second or third leg down, and now you're left naked and overexposed to equities? So it's right. it's very even though it seems really easy, and you could in you could read in a few no, sentences. No, it doesn't and seem it, very
0: easy at all. <laughs> you could, but I'm saying it's. it's I mean, have, have you read statistical consequences of fat tails? <laughs> exactly. Does it <that> seem
1: easy? <laughs> Right. I'm, I'm thinking theoretically, like you could any and any brokerage, you could hit the buy button and buy a put option. Right. But <laughs> oh, the, right. It, it's, the it's then once again, path versus terminus. How do you manage that path? That's the hard part. Right. And so that's why we believe in we went out and we, we track over 30 managers in the long volunteer space, which is pretty much the entire space. It's a pretty niche market. But the way we look at it is we look at all their different path dependencies, because the nice part is when you're dealing with hedge funds, they have very niche strategies. They're not trying to be everyone to everything. They're doing trying to do something very specific. That way, institutional allocators can judge how how much position size they want to allocate to them. This is why we use 14 managers, because every sell-off in the future could look different. And you'd never know a priori if that manager is going to monetize it perfectly. So in the next sell-off, we fully expect maybe a third of our managers might not time it perfectly, might not monetize it perfectly. But still two-thirds of that are going to really catch the move. So as long as we can monetize the meat in that move, because we have all these overlapping path dependencies, then we can, uh, Taylor and I can sleep at night, knowing that we're at least going to do fairly well on that sell-off, better than anybody may do individually or idiosyncratically. And then to answer your question, this is what, what kills both of us. And I, and I get this question all the time, is like, what is a retail investor can do? Uh, unfortunately, this is like the last bastion of active management. This is exactly why we built our long volatility fund first, to give retail access to this. But this is why it's such a difficult space because volatility surfaces are constantly undulating. You need to have theoretical values and a team of quants to know if you're overpaying or underpaying for those options, which you can never really know a priori either. And so it's, it's a very difficult process to manage a long volatility or tail risk position. And so that's why we, we do believe it's that last bastion of active management. And we believe there's a lot of path dependencies. And that's why we believe in the ensemble approach to make sure we don't miss it if it's a one in 10 year event. Right, right, yeah. Great. And I
2: think I'll, I'll say, uh, sure. I think you could take sort of some of the principles we've been talking about and apply them without necessarily needing to do anything that involves volatility, right? Like, at a very similar level, if your entire portfolio is invested in one stock, uh, like getting somewhat more diversified than that is, right? Even if you're investing in another stock that has a 0.8 correlation, uh, right? You, that you're still sort of taking advantage of some of that rebalancing. And compounding that, so I, th- I think it's you know you could interpret it more broadly. It's an argument for wh- whatever situation you're in, your investing options. Um, just thinking more seriously about portfolio construction, right? Not just thinking about what is. You know, I think the the most retail investors, you know, going back to like the DCF or the stocks, they tend to look like, what do I? What's the best stock, right? What do I think the best single investment is, and not okay, what do I think the best portfolio is? even if that means including some things, you know, as as in your example, in the thread of like X, Y, Z, that that looks like a bad standalone investment, but is beneficial to the portfolio. Right. So like, um, I think it's sort of, you know, certainly retail investors really don't like are um, biased against commodities because the long run return of commodities isn't uh, particularly good. But if it's uncorrelated to other things in the portfolio, then having some of that in your portfolio Can make sense. So I I think that the broader thing is just like given whatever your portfolio is now, um, can you look okay? Let's see, like what are the correlations? You know, what things might be negatively correlated or uncorrelated to that, and how could I mix those into a portfolio? And then you the the options that a a pension fund with fifty billion dollars has to do that are obviously very different than a retail investor with uh, you know five thousand dollars. But right. The same logic and the same the same thinking. I think you can you can
0: apply the same sort of principles um, right, to whatever right. your situation is. So so just uh, understanding the fundamental principles behind uh, Harry Brown and others, and trying to see what, what kinds of instruments are available today that uh, we that, that are within our power uh, that that we can use uh, to to implement some of those principles, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the way I think about it. it's, you know, for everyone in every situation, it's going to be exactly what that looks like is going to be a little bit different. Um, but taking that, you know, I think and most people, most people think about their making investments, not building a portfolio, but you're always building a portfolio. And so starting from that frame of like, I'm building a portfolio and how can I construct the best overall portfolio and then working backwards to like, okay, what are the, you know, what are the subcomponents of that? What are the investments? Um, I think that's just a more a more uh, constructive, better way to look at it. Uh,
1: definitely, it, it makes, it, makes it, a lot hi- of sense. Sorry, ten K to highlight what Taylor's saying too. There's like an emergent property of the portfolio that everybody needs to to think about. But also at the same time, if you, even if you use Harry Brown's and it's only 25% in equities, that doesn't mean you can't run your DCF and pick the single name of equ- equities. You just want to think about what's the overall position aggregate size of your equities and
0: your other. Right. Right. Exactly, Ma- makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. Uh, so, so uh, I-, I think we should start taking questions from uh, from listeners now. Uh, so, uh, if if uh, if you guys have any questions, please get on the on the call, uh, on the on the uh, callers list, and we'll we'll start taking questions. Uh, so, so the the first caller is uh, is Trey Toy. Hey guys, can you hear me? yeah yep
2: all good. hey, I'm a huge fan of uh what you guys do, and I appreciate you taking the call. Um, my question is, I run a book I'm that's a huge long fan of a, which of us specifically everybody any <laughs> <laughs> <You need> details <laughs> everybody yeah I am a uh, so I, I run a book that's long short. Um, it's pretty flat, uh, leans a little bit long, and I always felt like the shorts gave me protection against a drawdown. But after thinking about it more recently, it feels like short selling might just be another component of short ball. but on the other side, basically mean reversion versus mean expansion. And I was curious if you think that like running a short, but like that gives you the protection you need, or if you still need that convexity from long ball.
1: Awesome question. Um, and you're actually, you're, you're absolutely right. And also, thanks for the courage to be the first one to ask a question. Um, yes, yeah, so <laughs> this is definitely not investment advice. But if you um, look at long, short returns, and you overlay just long equities, you're going to see a high correlation from long, short hedge funds to just being long equities, like you're almost referencing. The other thing is like, the way it's structurally set up to be able to short stocks, we believe um, that's a negative expected value proposition. Um, just because of your borrow costs, everything else, and, and the convexity to, like, if you get a short squeeze put against you. And so this is why, actually, we never included purposely um, short equities in a, a long volatility or tail risk uh, portfolio. And because what can also happen is not only can whoever, wherever you're getting a borrow on from, that can exponentially increase. And then what also happened in, like, 2008, um, the government can ban short selling. And so it's it's dealing with the experiences of other short sellers like the Mark of the world, and what's happened to them when you need short selling the most, like in a two thousand eight environment, and either you know they the government shuts down short selling on their on their single names, and or you know your borrow goes from costing you two to three percent to ten to thirty percent, and Goldman Sachs reduce your leverage and or whoever you know local broker you're using, um, that's why it makes it we think very difficult if we think about that triumvirate runs once again of carry certainty convexity um that makes us kind of kick out any sort of uh short single name equities kind of exposure for that long ball and tail risk and i think that's what you were hinting at so hopefully i answered
0: yeah super helpful thanks so much thank you uh, the the next question is from uh tj
3: Not a question. I just wanted to contribute and say, excellent, excellent call-in. Loving the app, loving the show. Just keep it up, guys. Thank you so
0: much. Oh,
3: Oh, thank you very much.
0: That's very kind of you. Uh, So uh, are are there any more callers? So this this is a good point uh, where where I can plug uh, Confucius a little bit. So. Uh, Confucius had this wonderful saying, uh, where he said, "If if you ask a question, you may look like a fool for a minute, but if you don't ask a question, uh, you you may remain a fool for life." So if if you guys have questions, please uh, come on and ask them. Man, laying down the gauntlet of a challenge, do you? <laughs> uh, so so the next we have a next caller. It's uh, it's Brooke.
1: Rook,
2: it looks like you're on mute. Yeah. Nope. There we go. Can you hear me? Yeah,
0: yeah. We can hear
2: you. All right. Yeah, so thanks for the time today. Uh, Great discussion, guys. And, um, you know, earlier you talked a little bit about the rebalancing idea, right? So you've got this portfolio going, and you've got some systematic rebalancing in there. The long vol piece is definitely, you know, like, so – if you have a big spike in volatility, your long vol piece is going to jump. Do you have a special rebalance during times like that, or do you just follow the systematic rebalancing
1: great question, and that's this is why it's so difficult sometimes for the um, rebalancing with long vol. and and we're like I was referencing earlier, this is why we use fourteen managers across it is that di- we find managers with different wrinkles of monetization heuristics and so like just to use a, a toy example if if vol spikes, you know, 1x or 2x, they might take like maybe 10% off. If it spikes 5x, they might monetize 20% of that. To 10x, they might monetize another 50%. So they're, they're tranching their monetizations. And so what we try to do from a, a practical perspective is we allow our managers to use their monetization heuristics because we've talked to them in depth about what those are. So when we go out to search for other managers, we're looking for managers that do it slightly differently. So we kind of allow our managers to monetize. Now, there's a different question at the pragmatic at the total portfolio solution level is when do you rebalance? Now, based on the way we structured our uh, portfolio or our fund, and just the way it l- works from a regulatory purposes, we have inflows and outflows on a monthly basis because we offer monthly liquidity. So we're, we're forced rebalancing our portfolio on a monthly basis. And so let's just say March 2020 happens, um, You know, by mid to you know, third week of March, your, your stock market's down 34%. And your, your volatility and total risk positions are up in a really convex nature, right? Now, should you rebalance there? You don't know because it could continue further, et cetera. But then when we got to the end of March, both of those came back in a little, but we would have been rebalancing then at that April 1st point. And what's interesting about that is even though you know, the stock market went from down 34 to maybe only down 12 by the end of March, you're still taking from those uh, those convex positions in your long volatility terror risk and you get that convex cash on your books. And then April 1st, now we're buying equities at a lower NAV point. And that's really the key to rebalancing, is you just, you, it's, you're rebalancing into a lower NAV point at those equities. And then you're not guessing if there's going to be a V-shaped recovery, because we still have protection on, but there happened to be a V-shaped recovery. So that rebalancing premium was even higher. And so that's one way to think about it. You can use timing rebalances. And so, yeah, I'd probably recommend more quarterly rebalancing on that schedule. But i referenced earlier, Harry Brown uses rebalancing bands which a lot of times are better. I mean, you can run your own back test. You know, you can use the timing rebalance. My buddy Corey Hofstein wrote a great paper on rebalancing timing luck where he actually recommends rebalancing weekly in tranches. That way you're not just counting on the, the luck of maybe the first of the month rebalancing. But then Harry Brown is maybe a little bit better when you're using rebalancing bands. And what I mean by that is we're talking about 25% each to all those asset classes. And he would only rebalance if one of them touched 13, uh, 35% or touched uh, 15%. So he waited for them to move a good 10% before he would rebalance. And what that I think meant in practice, if I recall correctly, is on average he was only rebalancing maybe every year and a half over like a multi-decade horizon. Does that answer the question?
2: Yes, it does. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. I mean, I'll just added that. Quickly. I think practically too, you know, we, we can't talk about this, but like your tax situation matters. Um, that's right. So I think part of the idea behind why Harry Brown did rebalancing bans is if you're rebalancing on average every year and a half, and usually you're rebalancing with long-term. Um, Capital gains. So you know, everyone's tax situation is different, all that stuff. But that's
0: that's one thing you want to factor into uh, to how you do the rebalancing. Uh, right. Absolutely. So rebalancing has you know bo- bo- both uh, tran- transaction costs as well as tax costs associated with it. So um, y- you want to pick uh, a, a schedule that that n- not not just works from from a Shannon's demon or something like that theoretical perspective, but that also includes these costs. Uh, that you have to pay in the real world right uh so so the the, the next caller is uh, keith harmon hello hello
4: i wanted to echo an earlier caller uh love all your content on different podcasts and uh uh your tweet threads are excellent 10k diver um this so this is incredible No, thank you. Uh, This is incredible. I'd love to be able to access it later. So hopefully that's the case. Uh, But a couple of things I wanted to ask. Um, One, some commentary on whether you think these strategies can and should be implemented in crypto markets. And then two, when you sounds like you've organized a fund, which is amazing, and I knew that actually. Um, But when you talk about rebalancing schedules, like, do you do any of this trading programmatically on your own? Or have you assembled like a fund of sub-managers and they each have a sort of direction for the, their portion of the portfolio.
1: Two great questions. Um, one, I'll start with the, the latter one. Um, uh, we kind of believe that we don't believe in uh, a lot of hedge fund managers also have personal accounts that they trade. And they might not trade the way they trade in their hedge fund. Uh, we don't necessarily believe in that. We built exactly what we wanted for ourselves and our families. So we try to put all of our assets into like our cockroach fund or any of our other funds on that total portfolio solution perspective. Um, so yeah, we like, it goes back to that humility. We don't believe we can predict the future. So we try to build the best portfolio we can, and we're building exactly what we want. If other people like it, great. But if they don't, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, different flavors in the world that they can go with. So yeah, we, we don't have like a, a side accounts or personal accounts that we trade out of. Um, and that's why we build what we built. I'm um, oh, sorry. I
4: meant, does no. your fund trade programmatically? Like, does your fund trigger rebalancing and position events, or does it just aggregate the performance of the sub manager?
1: Uh, it just aggregates the performance of the, the of the sub managers. Yeah, we're not trying to uh, once again predict that future. And then because of we offered that monthly liquidity, um, it just it's a it's a forced rebalance the first of the month. As as AUM goes in and out, um, we just naturally have to rebalance the first of the month across the um, the different buckets within our total portfolio solution. And then your first question, I'm sorry, I'm blanking now on your first question. I'm sorry.
4: Crypto. Oh, crypto. Sorry, right. has to yeah, be no, brought up.
1: We, yeah, no, we spent the last six to 12 months talking to a lot of different crypto hedge funds. Um, and yeah, we talked to actually a lot of market makers, options traders from TradFi that are, would love to apply their Um, their trade to the crypto markets. Um, The issue is a lot of onshore U.S. funds um, don't have access to a lot of the crypto options markets. So that's kind of a a handcuff there. Um, So that's one of the things we have to deal with. And then also, you know, we've been talking to them about how they would implement a lot of their options trading strategies in the crypto markets. But once again, talking about volatility as variance, um, instead of the, the volatility smirk or smile, where where puts are going to have a put skew that's more more expensive in the S&P markets because of that stairs up, elevator down, you're actually going to see the opposite. You're going to have call skew in the crypto markets. So that it it's just flips it around. doesn't mean it's impossible to trade, but it's just a kind of a different dynamic um, where you're paying up on the call side, which is kind of great if you're trying to hedge some of that downside risk. Um, but that's one of the things we're looking at moving forward in the future, and that's why we've been having a lot of those conversations. But there's not quite as many... Um, liquid markets or liquid trading strategies on um, in option space for crypto at this point especially for
4: got it got it yeah i have a just a tiny bit of experience here and um i think historically there's a lot of funds that are set up where they have like a offshore feeder domiciled in the cayman islands and a master fund in the cayman islands and then an onshore feeder that handles the us piece and then interestingly i, I don't know what your structure is but you don't have a limit on offshore investors, and particularly in the world of crypto, there's the ability to do kind of in-kind wallet-to-wallet transfers and, and taking a lot of um, taking a lot of forward investment. Although, of course, it's still subject to the the larger kind of global um,
3: KYC. Uh, thank you very much. The
0: the next caller is uh, John Doe.
2: John, it looks like you're
3: there we doing. go. Hey, can you hear me
2: now? Yep.
0: Yeah, we can hear you.
3: Hey, really appreciate the conversation. Um, you know, I wanted to first ask about your, your point to not, um, carrying puts on individual stocks and the risks associated with that. If one was to, um, carry puts on say spy or SPX, uh, are those same risks, um, Also there. And additionally, you know, we're used to uh, with a mean reverting vol, people running iron condors, iron butterflies. Um, Is there a chance in a more, you know, uh, to run a carry strategy on like an inverse iron condor uh, to have a position that will pick up on that long vol? Or am I way off? And again, this is the real challenge for retail traders to get long vol. Lastly, to the vol point, do you have any resources for retail traders to get any type of good charting or information on different vol skews and how uh, implied is matching up with realized and historical? Thank you. Great question.
1: So I hope I can remember all of them. Uh, one just, and this helps me clarify. I wasn't saying uh, buying put options on individual equities is a bad call. I was saying um, just outright shorting individual equities is a negative expected value proposition in in, in our estimation. So buying um, put options on individual equities is fine, and the difference between buying them on the index versus equities is a dispersion trade, as it's classically known. But you're just going to have to attenuate the volatility. So you're going to have to figure out your theoretical volatilities for your single names versus you know the basket in the index. Um, it's a little bit better to estimate volatility on an index than it is single name sometimes. So you just have to, that's on your own accord to figure out the, the single name equity ball, whichever you're trading in. So that's that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I was just, I was referencing just uh, outright shorting, not necessarily buying uh, put options on equities. Um, thinking about uh, when, the, when the retail strategies as they typically sell you with iron condors, et cetera, I've talked about it on several podcasts in the sense that that's not a strategy that is a structured trade. And so the ones that are recommending that you're, you're permanently rolling iron condors, you're not really attenuating to what's going on in the marketplace or ball surfaces, et cetera. So you don't know if you're underpaying or overpaying for options. Um, but that's typically what's uh, you know, told the retail. And then you know, the inverse of that trade, yes, could it be long volatility? Are you getting positive carry? Sometimes, sometimes not. But anytime you're putting on a, any sort of spread position, you're reducing that convexity. Which is fine becomes commensurate trade offs. You may have to take a larger P and L position size to attenuate for that for that lowering uh, your convexity amount versus buying you know outright puts. If you're buying put spreads or put you know you know backward ratios etc. You know you're going to have to just attenuate that accordingly. And because you can get kind of pinned to the belly of that move, you could end up you know that trade can get really wonky. And what you thought was maybe a long ball position can end up being a short ball position. And then I think you had a third question that now you know my brain doesn't work that well.
3: Yeah, so I was trying to understand, okay, uh, as us retail investors start to get more hip to the volatility game, uh, do you have any resources you would point to or platforms that help uh, someone visualize and start to map out, uh, you know, volatility pricing in the options they want to trade, right? And And kind of yep. with that, if I look at using a simplified uh, ETF for tail risk, right? Like say, uh, you know, CYA. When I look at the holdings there, it seems darn impossible for me to figure out actually how much tail risk I'm getting, at what point it's really kicking in, and thus how much of carry of that I should put into a portfolio.
1: Great question. Um, And I'm going to try to answer as best I can, given that we're not allowed to publicly talk about like other people's products, so I hope you understand that caveat. Um, but to your point, um, I, I just did an interview with like Jem Carson where we we addressed this issue of like how does retail get access to vol services, dealer positioning, etc. Right? And unfortunately, like, these guys have spent two decades trading volatility. They, they create their own theoretical vol surfaces, and then they also have all their Bloomberg chats with the relationships they create to create their own modeling of dealer flows. Like you can publicly get you know, dealer flows positioning, you know, that, that gamma dealer flow positioning from like a squeeze metrics and gex, but you're missing kind of like dark pools. They also have a metric for dark pools, but all of our managers actually build those in-house. And this is why I was once again saying, it's like, this is the idea that, uh, long volatility risk is the last fashion active management. They have teams of quants in-house that are building their own theoretical values for vol surfaces, dealer positioning, et cetera. So I wish there was a good answer for retail. I, I don't necessarily have one. And the other part of that too is like our managers, and this is why we use an ensemble of overlay and overlapping managers, is there most of them are, are trying to opportunistically trade these positions. And that's how they're trying to lower that carry, that cost of carry is by opportunistically trading these positions. So they might be only in the market 40 to 70% of the time because they're trying to lessen that that bleed cost when you're buying insurance. And so that's the other the reason why I'm saying like they're not like permanently rolling you know, iron condors or put positions, kind of like that. And we do have a manager that does roll puts for us, but we allow him to pick you know, different tenors and different deltas to try to manage that position so he's not necessarily overpaying. Um, so that's one answer question. And then, and then when you think about what is available retail, and by the way, I loved your alliteration with a uh, simplified tail. like I got everything you were putting down there. Like I said, we, couldn't, we can't necessarily talk about specifics of those. But once again, if you're in an environment that is just systematically rolling puts, you're not attenuating your buying level to the volatility surface. And so you could be just perpetually overpaying for that protection. So you could potentially be burning more premium than you would normally require if you're a little more opportunistic or created your own theoretical levels and not just doing it systematically. And then you're also maybe reducing your convexity because it really depends on how well you're able to work that order on the buy, right? If I buy a, a put for five cents and it goes up to 50, great, I made 10 next. But when I'm going to buy that put, if I pay $0.10 cents instead, and I'm expecting a 10x payout, I've already lessened my convexity to, to 5x. And so it's, it's about that ability for them to work the orders and, and get the best pricing they can. So uh, unfortunately, I wish I had a better, more clear-cut solution. Like here, if I was retail, here's how I do it. And here's where you can buy all the information,
3: you know, free on Google.
1: But it, it unfortunately doesn't work out that way.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, those are great points. Uh, there are still some some things that that may be out of reach for for retail investors. Although you know who, who knows that that might change in the future.
3: You know, one other thing that comes to mind is if certain funds have expense ratios that are 75 bips, 100 bips, 110, uh, is that expense actually compounding, eliminating some of the benefits of trying to get convexity using a fund.
1: Yeah, it depends. Obviously, um, the expense ratio is always gonna come at a cost, but it's about what, what is your net return after cost? You know, This is why I was saying, part of that last fashion active management being long ball, uh, we have, we are, we're have high fees on fees and we deal with how you get what you pay for. So it's always about what's my net return after all costs and fees. And so, yeah, it'll affect it. But like well, once again, if they're just systematically rolling, then yeah, it's dramatically going to affect that convexity. Because like you're saying, you're paying for maybe only a, a few percentage of, of buying puts. But if, if you're only rolling 2% of the AUM on puts and you're paying an additional 1% for somebody to do that, then that's something that, yeah, you have to address personally. I can't necessarily give advice on that. But that's part of, I, I, one thing I did miss on that is if, if somebody's systematically rolling puts, but they're also systematically doing the same spend amount, that's going to dramatically affect your convexity as well. Um, So they're not actually toggling to the notional value of the equity position that they're hedging. Because like, for example, if you're just systematically rolling 2% or 3% on your puts, you know, the market environment changes so dramatically, where in 2019, only spending 2%, you would have had an amazing convexity. But right now, to cover the same amount, you might have to spend 10% rolling those puts to make sure you hit that negative 20% or negative 30% attachment point in S&P. So it does also affect that as well, as far as the convexity of, of how you're position sizing. So this systematizing this process makes it uh, a lot more difficult than trying to constantly toggle to like the, the notional exposure of your equity
0: position. Uh, absolutely. Uh, great, great points. Yeah. So, so you, you always have to think about uh, what, what you're hedged against when, when you're rolling over puts or uh, something like that, how, how much you're paying for the hedge and what kinds of things you're hedged against and so on. And so the, the, Amount of puts you need to buy, um, the 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 how how much out of the money the puts should be, what their expiry date should be, so so there there are lots of parameters to play around with, and you have to constantly be willing to change those parameters to try and get better and better deals. Uh, so I think those are all the questions that we had. Uh, so uh, I'll I'll just uh, I'll ask you both one uh, one last thing, which is uh, where where can people follow your work. Um, if, if they want to learn more about you, more about your fund, um, where, where, where can people get more information about you guys? And uh, and then we'll close.
2: Yeah, I think uh, easiest place, if you want to ping us or something, is just Twitter. Uh, I'm at Taylor Pearson, M-E, Taylor Pearson, me. Jason is at Jason Mutiny. Um, and then, yeah, our website is mutinyfund.com. We have some you know, research and some of the things we've written, interviews we've done and stuff there that people can check
0: out. Okay, perfect. So th- thank you both very much uh, for uh, appearing on the show. It was, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you guys. And um, you, you shared so, so many valuable points. So as, as Jason said on Bill Brewster's show, uh, there, there are people who follow Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and there, there is a different set of people who follow uh, market wizards and, and that, that type of thing. And we, we can learn so much uh, from uh, each other, uh, but that seldom happens. So uh, I, I really enjoyed this. And I, I, I thought about so many different things talking to you guys that I, I wouldn't have even thought about otherwise. So thank you both very much. And we, we were, appreciate I Thank it. you so much for the opportunity to be on,
1: on your show. And, and we thank everybody in the audience for coming and spending part of your Sunday with us as we just ramble along. Thank
0: you. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, so uh, that that's the end of the show. See see you guys uh, next Sunday. Thank you very much. Bye bye.